Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. to excuse me may i have some more we are the foodcast with an insatiable appetite my name is brad kramer i am joined as always by my co-host and grand poobah of foodsided.com christine struble um christine this is it this is our season finale as we head into uh the end of the year and the holidays we are putting the wraps on season one with a uh, jam-packed episode well i'm glad it's a jam-packed episode and not like a cliffhanger of will they return did they get food poisoning? What is on their holiday table? For this season finale, we have not our usual two guests. We have three guests because we want to put that under, uh, under everybody's tree um, as our gifts to them for the end of the year. Um, we have my conversation with uh, a man who I guess I could comfortably say is acknowledged as one of the um, all-time great chefs. Uh, Jacques Pepin, and your conversation with the very popular Padma Lakshmi, and a brief conversation that you had with Carla Hall. So, yes, we will do our little chit chat as we always do, because if even if we're not amusing the audience, we have to amuse ourselves. But uh, those are three outstanding interviews that I think people enjoy for assorted reasons that we'll get into shortly. But before we turn to the interviews, as the grand poobah of foodsided.com and the person who creates 99.9% of the content for the site because you have slugs like me that write very, 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 very rarely, you are also the recipient of many, many press releases, interviews, products for new products that, that come on the market and new ideas that come on the market. So I want to know and people can see that through your, your Twitter account if they all they have to do is check it out. I want to know what new holiday-themed products that you have come across or tried that have stood out to you that might pique people's interest and send them scurrying to their local grocery store or local restaurant or coffee shop or donut shop that uh, things that struck your fancy and uh, made an impression on you. Ooh, that that that's a that that might be a long list. Let's see. Well, it's hot chocolate season. So even if you um, live in a hot climate like me, I still like hot chocolate at night while watching, you know, some really entertaining shows, sometimes good, sometimes bad. Um, there's a, there's a company out of Texas based in Austin and I'm going to pronounce her name wrong, but it's Delesion. It's like D E Y S. 
L-A-I-N. I probably screwed that up too, which will get me in trouble. But they make this gingerbread hot chocolate. It's like a sipping cho- hot chocolate. So it's really, really rich. Well, if hot um, chocolate's hot, then you'd be foolish to do anything but sip it. Well, unless you've, you know, kind of like I've killed the all feeling in my hands from touching too many hot pans over the years. So <laughs> I you'd, don't be have, the one, you'd be the one to chug the hot chocolate. Okay. <laughs> but that's just me. It's one of my many quirks. So I, I, I've become obsessed with that gingerbread hot chocolate. That's really good. And, and is that, is that uh, people can find that at their, just their local supermarket, wherever they live? Um, I think you might have to order it online Okay. Um, or Amazon. You know, Amazon is everything. Let's, except, let's be real. Except you don't know the pronunciation or the spelling of the company's okay, name. Well, I can tell you that, hold on, I'm going to go to my package and that is sitting right next to my favorite coffee mug and look and spell the name properly so we don't have don't have any problems it's d e l y s i a and they're out of austin okay so and, now, and you can now, find that d e l y s i a dot com and that's where you can buy it okay so now continue from where you were before i rudely interrupted you about it's a sipping hot chocolate yeah, so it's not, you know, not not the hot chocolate that you get from some of the grocery stores that have the marbits in it. It's, you know, more sophisticated adult. You, you feel better, you know, drink it with your pinky out or something as opposed to, you know, the one that you grew up with as a kid. So um, that basically I hide it from my children so they don't steal it. It's that kind of drink. And they get the Swiss Miss. Yes. Yes, they do. And just for the record that I drink my Swiss Miss with my pinky out. So I can be fancy too. Well, you can drink your Swiss Miss with your special Swiss Miss ugly sweater, which came out earlier this year with a special pocket to keep your cocoa warm. Oh, dear God. Because, you know, there's there's ugly sweaters for every, just about every food out there. From, you know, I'm a casserole model from the Green Giant to Popeye's to... Um, Tic Tac, you name it. Everyone has one. And which of them do you have and actually are seen in public wearing? Um, I made my son wear I'm a I'm a the green giant, I'm a casserole model, uh, to meet the Grinch at Universal. Those pictures are great. Oh yeah, I did see those pictures on social media. Yeah, and he I, also wore the naughty, um, naughty nice tic tac one while meeting Santa. So, you know. Good see, without knowing the context of the pictures when I saw them, I will confess to having called immediately called uh, Child Protective Services in Florida on their behalf. Well, it was a warm day and he did have to suffer by wearing a sweater with his shorts. So maybe there is something to be said for that. But, you know, he got cookies afterwards. There's a trade off. Christmas sweater on. It's got to be done. Hey, Christine, you want to know why traditional diets don't work? It's because you can't fight your biology with willpower. But Calibrate is different. 
It's a comprehensive doctor-guided metabolic reset that promotes sustainable results through lifestyle changes. Calibrate works because they combine prescribed, FDA-approved medication with lifestyle changes to improve metabolic health. It's a fully integrated program that includes classes, one-on-one video coaching, in-app tracking, and community with members like you and I. They provide a comprehensive wellness plan personalized to your needs so it's easy to fit Calibrate into your busy schedule. Check in with the app as often or as little as you'd like. All of the goals you set are personalized and tracked by doctors and coaches. Your weight doesn't reflect your willpower. Get back in control with Calibrate. Get $50 off your one-year metabolic reset when you use the promo code BELIEVE, that's B-L-E-A-V, at joincalibrate.com. That's $50 off when you use BELIEVE at joincalibrate.com. We mentioned earlier the interviews that we have for this episode, and I wanted to get to the first one, which is a conversation I had recently. I spoke to him on National Giving Day, which a couple weeks ago, um, Chef Jacques Pepin. Um, Most people know the name. He has been a fixture, aside from being one of the all-time great chefs and legendary chefs, he has been a fixture on... Uh, PBS through the years and is known for also his uh, PBS shows with his dear friend, Julia Child. And we talk about that. And before I tell um, just a little tease on a a cute story that he and I talk about, I do want to encourage people to check out the website for the Jacques Pepin Foundation. And I would also go as far as to encourage anybody who's a true foodie and enjoys cooking shows and cookbooks to spend the very, very modest $40 that it takes to join the foundation for two purposes. Um, The first is the foundation helps provide culinary education to people who are disenfranchised from the workforce. So it could be ex-cons, homeless people, whatever. And that's always a worthy cause because it gives them that culinary education and, and gets them into the workforce. But also there is tons of content. And that includes a new season of Cook with Jacques Pepin and Friends, which is basically a video recipe book, um, a a wide variety of chefs over the course of the three seasons he's done the show, everybody from Jada De Laurentiis in the new season to Michael Simon, um, Martha Stewart, right down the line. And they're fun and interesting and it's great content and there's so much more content. So for $40, you would be helping people who need the help and supporting the Jack Pen Foundation, but you would also be benefiting through the um, tremendous amount of content that they offer. And the one little anecdote I wanted to share, Christine, and I don't know if you know this, not many people do. Um, Jack Pen, I believe in 1916, he discusses it in the interview turned down an offer from John F. Kennedy, who was president at the time, and Jackie Kennedy to become White House chef and instead took an offer to go to work for Howard Johnson's. I mean, the old school Hojo? Hojo's and helped had a hand in creating the now famous fried clams. Um, yes, he, and he, he tells me about that decision and how he benefited from it, but I just think that is one of the all-time great anecdotes to be able to share that you turn down the president of the United States and a, and, and a job working at the White House to go work for Hojo's. I, I don't think there's many better stories than that. No, I think that that, that actually 
And you said it was in the 60s, right? 1960. 1960. And, he had, and he had previously been working in France for the president of France. Might have been De Gaulle. I'm not sure. Um, so he had a history working for the highest levels of government and, uh, and leaders of countries and had the offer here to, to go to work in the Kennedy White House. But now he chose the uh, orange roof of Howard Johnson's. Well, I think about that in like two ways. Just think of what would have been said within Washingtonian circles about a French chef at the White House during the Kennedy era because they already had all these ideas of the Kennedys changing the look and feel of the White House. And there were so many, you know, times where they said that her, you know, uh, Jacqueline uh Onassis Kennedy, you know. No, 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 no. She wasn't in Onassis yet. Oh, sorry. You're right. Um th- so when when she, you know, t- took everything in a different direction and wanted this, you know, fancy, elegant, uh sophisticated vibe. Created and- Camelot. Yeah. But but you know, comparatively, if what would have happened if that it would have changed probably the trajectory of what is a White House chef, because now today the only I can only think I can only think of Sam Cass. Yeah, which, that's who I was thinking of. Yep. And and he and he, you know, has done things recently where he works a lot with trying to bring um healthy eating into families and, and he's worked with Blue Apron and companies like that. But otherwise you don't really think about the White House chef like you do a celebrity chef. I bet you walk down the street, you can get everyone to name anything from Guy Fieri to Julia Child to a handful of other people that you see on TV all the time. But if that had happened earlier, would there have been a different conversation? Because everything was ripe for people to make a change. Because, you know, look at the time frame right around the same era when Julia Child came through, people were waiting to not be that family who peeled back the aluminum foil on the TV dinner, pulled out the TV tray and sat and watched something and ate something that had no flavor. People wanted to take the next step. They wanted to explore what food could be and what it should be. So maybe the era of American cuisine would have taken a bigger leap forward if he had done that. As you'll hear, he believes that the 10 years he spent at Hojo's enabled him to have an impact on the way we eat and dining in general society where he felt he would not have had that ability having taken the job at the White House. So it's interesting. I just think it's a fascinating story. And he goes into good detail um, sharing it and the thought process and what he feels he got from the, the experience at Howard Johnson's. And instead of me sitting here trying to describe it to you, let's take a listen to my conversation with Jacques Pepin. Your foundation's stated vision is enriching lives and strengthening communities through the power of culinary education. Can you talk, can you talk about the genesis of your foundation a little over five years ago and the huge strides it's made and continues to make in changing lives? Well, actually, actually, the credit goes to my son-in-law, Raleigh, and uh, my daughter, Claudine. Uh, Raleigh, my son-in-law, is a professional chef, but he teaches 
at Johnson and Well for the last uh, 10 years now or so. And I remember when he started there, you know, he went to, uh, he had a, a BA in, the, in the, I think in literature or whatever, but uh, uh, he went back to school, got a master, eventually got a PhD. And now he teach and he's very good at putting things together. And he decided like five, six years ago, we should have, a, with all the material that you have, we should do a, a, a you know, something, uh, uh, some type of foundation. And uh, who do you want to work with? And we talked about it and I said, you know, frankly, people who come out of jail uh, would be a good, uh, you know, would be a good, I don't know, a good public for me in a, in a sense that because uh, I have been on PBS for 35 years, I taught at BU for like, I'm still teaching at BU 37 years. So, I did the uh, 11 series of 26 show plus many show of uh, of technique and I have 30 books. So all that material, he start putting it together to in a form that people could uh, apprehend relatively easily and uh, to try to teach people who have been, have been disenfranchised by life, you know, such as people coming out of jail or former drug addict or homeless people or veteran, uh, so that they could reintegrate the, the workforce and work in the restaurant, uh, knowing those basic techniques. And there is, you know, a great need for that type of thing now. So uh, he's done a great, great job doing that. I mean, I would never have done it uh, without, <laughs> without him or <laughs> Claudine, frankly. I am not uh, that good at, at doing that type of thing. But... Uh, he used that material, and we work also with Tina Salter. Tina was my uh, one of my producer, the main producer when I was at KQED, the PBS station in San Francisco, and uh, so she had access to all of those shows that I did. And as I say, I did uh, 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 twenty-six show, uh, eleven time, eleven series. So he, she can extrapolate a show that I'm doing a, a whole menu, but she may extrapolate how to peel asparagus out of this and make a little video of technique out of that, how to sharpen a knife or how to push an egg or whatever. So this is what she's doing. She's very good at it. And my son-in-law is very good at it too. So it's working quite well, you know. So, so and you're being very modest in the process. No, I'm not, no, no, I'm not really modest. It's true, uh, uh, you know, I mean, I'm the cook. Yeah, <laughs> and they use, you know, my material. But we've done also the same thing since the pandemic started. Including my daughter said, could you do some small show for people who are stuck at home with what you have in your refrigerator or in your freezer or stuff for five minutes? And we've done that. And I, I, I've been amazed, you know, uh, uh, we did 220 of those with my friend uh, Tom Hopkins with a dear friend and uh, he's been uh, working with me as a photographer for almost 40 years now and recording. So when we did those shows, especially at the beginning, to have only two people in the kitchen, him and me, I'm cooking and I'm doing the dishes and he's recording. And uh, and we do 10, 12 shows a day. Well, those are five-minute shows when we do it. And I've been amazed, you know. We had, uh, I think, something like 300,000 people in Facebook, and now we have close to, I don't know, one and a half million or more. So so uh, those are very, those are things, again, that I did because of Claudine who asked me to do that. So fine, I'll do the cooking, but they, they'll do the rest of it. So you and I are chatting, uh, recording on Giving Tuesday. 
which is also the day you're releasing volume three of your video recipe book, Cook with Jacques Pepin. Who are some of the chefs you feature for people who aren't, have not seen it yet or um, want to access it? Who are some of the fe- chefs you feature in volume three? Wow. I mean, it's amazing. Giada, uh, De Laurentiis, you have Jean-Georges Bongerichen. I think we have Wolfgang Puck in there. I think we have uh, even Isaac Mizrahi. You know, the, uh, so I, I, I have been amazed, you know, at the, how generous uh, those people have been. I mean, he started with uh, that again. It's an idea from, uh, from uh, Rolly, my son-in-law, <clears throat> to ask people to do something for the foundation. And they, I don't know of anyone who has said no. I mean, in the first volume from Jose Andres to... Uh, Andrew Zimmer, from Martha Stewart to Rachel Ray, to all of those people have done. And this is the third series of 40 or 50, I forgot. So uh, it's a lot of... Uh, and uh, actually, we won some type of uh, webby for that, uh, whatever that is. Uh, <laughs> it did. And uh, it's a great thing that uh, relatively quite inexpensive. It's $40 to join uh, the foundation there and to have access to all of that material. You can have access by name of a chef or by recipe or by category and so forth. So again, he put it together uh, relatively fast. I mean, the whole year he's been working at that. So you mentioned Jose Andres, which leads to my next question for you. In addition to your commitment to culinary education, you're also passionate about the issues of food waste and food insecurity. What are some ways people can follow your lead and that of chefs like uh, Jose Andres to have a positive impact on those crises? Well, you know, uh, I'm sure that with the pandemic in the last couple of years, uh, probably caused uh, probably a lot of divorce of people getting stuck together, but at the same time, it uh, brought a lot of people together to cooking together, being together, sharing the food without an app all the time in your hand with a telephone or whatever, sitting down together. And for me, this is the base of, uh, of a family. You know, I mean, when Claudine, my daughter, were in her 50s now, when she was a year and a half old, I hold her in my home and I said, okay, I'll mélange, stir the pot. So she stirred it. So so she can eat it because, quote, she made it with, it, with her dad, you know. So uh, when my granddaughter was three or four years old, uh, she, I had a little stool. She stood next to me at the, uh, in, the, in the kitchen. I said, give me some salad. You think it's clean enough to give me a bowl? Let's go to the garden. Let's get some parsley. And she said, no, that's not parsley. That's sharp. Taste it. That parsley. That, that. And then I take her to the market and say, okay, give me some pear. Make sure they arrive. Did you smell those pear? I mean, or tomato or whatever. So, you know, it, it, uh, for me, it created a, a kind of platform or a canvas uh, to have discussion with the teenage and with people in the family, you know, and that bring not only cooking together, but sharing the food after it bring conversation and it bring people together. So I think that's, for me, that's a very important uh, part of the family structure, you know, to be together this way. And you can do that and you can help people this way uh, and by showing them also a very simple way of, of cooking and using uh, by definition, you know, I'm a very miserly cook because, you know, being raised during the war with my, my mother would never throw something out. You know, I mean, my father, uh, if he threw out a piece of bread, which was molded, he would kiss it before. And when he threw it out, he threw it to the chicken anyway. So, <laughs> uh, yes, that, that's part of uh, our tradition, you know, using everything. 
I mean, the soup that I made that my wife baptized uh, fridge soup, you yeah. know, it, I, I opened the refrigerator and, uh, you know, I have some wilted salad, a piece of carrot, did that. I did one of those yesterday. You know, that a way of emptying the refrigerator for me and uh, making a soup. And now it's cold. It's cold here. So we right. have soup every day. So. Your signature sign off is happy cooking, yes. which, which is emblematic of your approach to food. Can you share what happy cooking means to you and what you hope it means to people who enjoy your cookbooks, your shows, your, your video recipe books? Well, you know, in our time, especially in our time of, uh, of polarization and so forth, you know, you can't really talk about anything, you know, but cooking is fine. You know, it's a common denominator there that, uh, and, you know, happy cooking is important because you cannot cook indifferently. You know, you have to put a lot of yourself in the cooking. Cooking may be the purest expression of love to a certain extent because you always cook for the other. Always cook for your kid or your grandmother or your lover or, or your wife or whoever, but you cook for someone else, you know. So without any anything added to it. And the cooking together, and especially the sharing around the table, sharing around the table is a great equalizer. You know, you never know you're invited. You can be next to the, uh, you know, next to the, the governor of Connecticut or next to the uh, the guy with the dishwasher in the restaurant next door. It doesn't really make any difference. They're uh, around the table. Yes, it's an equalizer. And Happy cooking is important because it reflects not only the happiness that you have by sharing food, but also the love that you do by, by giving food to others, you know, so I think. I'm a serial nostalgic, um, so I can't help but ask about your work with an iconic, iconic brand from my childhood, Howard Johnson's. Um, yeah. As I understand it, and, and, and you can confirm, let me know if I'm right or wrong, but you declined an offer from President Kennedy and his wife, Jackie, to become White House chef in lieu of taking the job with Howard Johnson's? Yes. In, in my mind, call me crazy, but Howard Johnson's famous fried clams were clearly a higher calling. <laughs> and I'm a Democrat, too. <laughs> the point is that I had been the chef to the president in France from uh, 56 to 58. I finished with, with the goal. Too. And at that time, you have to look at it in the context of the time. The, the, the cook was certainly at the, at the low end of the social scale. And uh, any good mother would have wanted a child to marry a, a doctor, a lawyer, certainly not a cook. And uh, when I was with the, the president in France, I served people like Eisenhower, Nehru, Tito, Macmillan, those were the head of state. Not anyone ever would ask you to to go to the dining room for kudo. Are you kidding? That did not exist. I had never had an interview with a magazine, newspaper, or television barely existed. No, the cook was in the kitchen. If anyone come to the kitchen was to complain about something, that was about the element. So, uh, as I said, you have to look at it in the context of the time. When I was asked to go to the White House uh, uh, in the spring of 1960, uh, I was working at the Pavilion and uh, in New York, I, not long after I came here, I had no inkling of the possibility of, of publicity or stuff because I look at it in the context of where it was at the time. In fact, apparently, uh, prior to that, the, the, the cook, the head cook at the White House was a black lady from, from the South. No one would have ever known her name. 
no, right. her name, no more than they would have known my name. I mean, they started changing after with uh, Kennedy, actually, who took a picture with René Verdon, who was the chef, who sent me a picture of him and Miss Kennedy. So women liberation, organic gardening, the 60s, things started to change. But prior to that, the cook was in a very low, low <laughs> position on the social scale. So, so uh, you know, you have to look at it in the context of the time. On the other hand, uh, working for Howard Johnson for me was another world altogether. You know, uh, I uh, I learned things like uh, I work with a chemist with the specific gravity, coliform, bacteria, thing that I do, and production and so forth. I was in a totally American environment uh, at that time. I was going to Colombia, so I had time to go at night and all of that type of thing. Uh, actually, when I left Howard Johnson, I stayed there 10 years, 1960, 1970. I opened a restaurant on Fifth Avenue called La Potangerie, between 45, 46th Street. Very high volume. You know, we did like seven, 800 people a day uh, and uh, 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 soup, bread, and so forth. Then I opened the World Trade Center with Joe Baum, uh, setting up the commissary and all that. Then I was a consultant at some point at the Russian Tea Room in New York. Uh, for, I'm saying all of that to say that I would never have been able to do any of those work without the training at Howard Johnson. It was another world. As a French chef, I would not have been able to do that type of production and so forth. So I learned a great deal there. And it was another world. You know? So and, you know, certainly uh, it was very, very good to me. So staying on the subject of nostalgia, I can't not ask you to reflect on your long friendship with uh, Julia Child and the various projects you worked on together. Yes, well, I met Julia again in 1960. You know, at that point, uh, six or eight months after I was here, through Helen McCullough, was the food editor of, uh, of House Beautiful. And uh, we became French. She kind of became my surrogate mother. And through her, I met James Beard. And Julia Child and Craig Lebon, who just uh, had started at the New York Times. Those were the trinity, the trinity of cooking in America. And uh, I'm saying that to show you how small the food world was at that point. You know, it was another world too. And I remember Helen uh, McCauley actually started telling me, "Oh, I have that woman who sent me a manu. I want to show you that manuscript." And it was the manuscript of Mastering the Art of French Cooking, which uh -huh. I looked at. They what do you think? I say, I think it's pretty good. I mean, they say, she said, well, the woman lives in Boston. She's coming next week. You want to cook? Or I say, yeah, absolutely. I say, she left. And she thought she's a very tall woman with a terrible voice. Although you see, so. <laughs> and I remember uh, 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 Julia coming, and we actually spoke French most of the evening because I wasn't here that long, and her French was better than my English. At that time, she just came back from France. And I became friends with her, so that's for like, half a century, you know, so when we taught together at BU uh, with me, uh, we did many shows together, I cook at her house, she cook at mine. Yeah, yeah, she was a good friend, you know. And what people don't realize also is that the theory we did together, we had no recipe, you know, so uh, uh, we decided, uh, actually at the beginning, she said, uh, just write down what you want to do, like a 50, 60 dish, and she did the same thing. And I think, three or four of my dish made it in the thing. It was what she wanted to do, but fine with me. But the point is that uh, uh, we had no recipe. So the, the camera didn't really know where we were going to. And, uh, and uh, uh, it took over two years by the time we finished that series to come on the air because they wanted to do a book with the club, Random House. 
And they keep calling, what did you do in that show? How much of this did you put in that dish? Which, of course, I didn't remember. It. <laughs> so we have to kind of redo those things. So it was a different way of doing it. Another thing on television, too, is timing. You know, I did many series with uh, KQED on time at the beginning. So, you know, 30-minute show is like 28 minutes of cooking. Uh, by 15 minutes, they come with a sign, 15 minutes, 7 minutes, 3 minutes, 1 minute right. wrap-up. So it could be pretty uh, uh, stressing. So uh, with, with Julia, when we did it, uh, she said, okay, we're going to cook. When it finished, we'll tell you. I think some of the show we did were over 100 minutes. <laughs> I don't really know what happened to to, uh, to uh, you know to the extra material, <laughs> but anyway. So you know, we opened a bottle of wine. We had no recipe and there was no time, so that was great. We cook like you cook at home because you take your time, and so that was fun, easy to cook. Why, Jack? What a wonderful costume! Why? Because I have all the ingredients for a Julia Caesar salad. It's not Julius Caesar salad. It's, it's not Caesar salad, Julius version. Oh and we're going to do other things, are we? Yes, we're going to do a whole array of different salads for you. Good. Let's get going. And we are back. I uh, hope you enjoyed that conversation I had with Jacques Pepin. It was an honor talking to him. He's an absolute gentleman, um, chock full of information and knowledge. And I should add one thing I didn't mention before we um, went into the interview. He, he alluded to it, though. Um, since the pandemic started almost two years ago, he has been creating content um, almost on a daily basis on his Facebook page where he does these little five minute cooking shows, um, sharing a recipe or an instruction or how to, how to do something, a kitchen skill. And those have been very engaging and it's, it's always a, a nice thing to add to your day. If you are a fan of Jacques Pepin or looking for uh, additional food content on a daily basis that, that you can actually take something away from. So I, I highly recommend that too. So, Christine, I mentioned earlier that you spoke to Padma Lakshmi recently, and that was in conjunction with the release of four new special holiday episodes of her uh, Hulu show, Taste the Nation. And I know she talks about the show and some of the, the knowledge that she came away from and some of the messages that she came away from doing those shows. But um, before we get into that interview, just talk a little bit about the the taste of the nation and the holiday episodes and and why you were so interested in chatting with her well it you know it the way that she her approach to these four episodes is to bring a different outlook on traditional holidays that everyone has this preconceived notion of what they are what they should be and you know from thanks while 
maybe heard a description of what has been passed down um, for tradition, say, of Thanksgiving, maybe not as isn't a complete picture based on historical facts. It's it's a good conversation to maybe just open people's eyes to say, just because I celebrate something one way doesn't mean that it's the only way to celebrate something. And at the same time, maybe stepping into someone else's traditions or beliefs can give yourself a better appreciation for what you hold dear. So whether it's, you know, um, I don't celebrate Hanukkah, but I can remember stories of my grandmother saying things in New York City when she was growing up. And there was more openness and willingness to share experiences and come together as a community versus sometimes what people do now, which is very separatist. So I think it's a good discussion just to kind of put it all out there and say, hey, guess what? Maybe I don't serve um, bonelos at my holiday celebration like some people in Hispanic cultures do, but I have something similar that my Irish grandmother used to like to, you know, a sweet treat that she would put on our table. So it's just finding more commonalities between people and celebrations. And maybe that makes things a little more meaningful during the time when so many people are just a little too punchy of what is the right word or the wrong word to say all the time. And that's the perfect jumping off point. Let's uh, hop right into your conversation with Padma Lakshmi so we can get a deeper dive and uh, people can learn more about uh, her special holiday episodes of Taste the Nation available on Hulu. Um, So I know we're talking about the new uh, four episodes of the holiday uh, shows that you have coming out on Hulu. And I was a little curious. One of the things that after watching them kind of uh, came to mind is when we think about the holidays, we often... it's a nuclear family celebration. You know, what was the tradition that grandma did and and how are those things kind of passed down? But you kind of take a little different approach where it's, you look at extending beyond the table and see the various cultural connections beyond just the, you know, mom, dad, grandma sitting at the table. Why do you think it's so important for people to think beyond just that nuclear family and see how we are all connected? Because I think you get a deeper understanding of the experience of being in that culture is the short answer. I think uh, many cultures also just inherently celebrate with extended family and not just nuclear family. So a lot of um, indigenous cultures do that, as you saw in the Wampanoag uh, episode in Martha's Vineyard in Cape Cod. And a lot of Asian cultures do that, as you saw also in our Korean episode for Solonal or Korean New Year. So um, to me, I'm trying to give as thorough and deep a portrait of the community that I'm featuring in as much as that's possible in a 30-minute program. Um, I also think if you invite um, extended family members beyond what the traditions of that community are, if you invite 
additional members, you widen your circle and you get a wider portrait, a broader portrait of that community and the people living in it. So, you know, I know that my immigrant experience, for example, coming to this country at age four is and growing up in this country is vastly different than my mother's immigrant experience who came here as an adult woman with a child she had to take care of as a single parent. I know that my daughter, who is biracial, has a third experience, which is totally different um, and very far from not only my experience, but my mother's experience. And I think that seeing that fuller portrait of multi-generations of immigrants in a community gives you just that, a fuller portrait. And and as you explore various stories of this, it seems somewhat telling that there can be different spins on the story itself. And you specifically referenced in the Thanksgiving episode how what we read in history books may not actually have happened in the way many people have come to know. So do you think that it's important that maybe now we not necessarily rewrite history, but rediscover the various aspects of history that maybe we haven't been exposed to? I don't think it's a matter of rediscovering. You know, this word discover or discovery is also loaded because it comes with a lot of colonial implications, right? And that's what, that's the problem. It's that European conquerors and and settlers and colonialists came to this country thinking they were discovering. So it was a discovery to them. But to the Wampanoag Nation, who's been here for 12,000 years, minding their business and, by the way, minding the shores and the rivers and the streams and the trees for all of us to enjoy, me, an Indian immigrant, someone else who's a descendant of someone from the Mayflower, a third person who came here 100 years ago from, you know, their family came here from China, for all of us to enjoy. I think it's important to look at history from as many angles as possible. I think you have to check your sources and have multiple sources. And for decades and decades and you know, a couple of centuries now, we've had only one side of that Thanksgiving story told. And it wasn't really until Thanksgiving became an official holiday by Lincoln, you know, after the Civil War in an attempt to kind of reunify the country and create some mythology that Thanksgiving was even a holiday that was formally celebrated by European Americans. You know, and I'm when I say European Americans, I mean white Americans, what we call as Caucasian Americans, which is also a misnomer because the Caucasus are a very small part of, of you know, <laughs> Asia Minor and, and Europe, right? Um, anybody coming from Western Europe um, and settling in this country and their descendants um, are European Americans. So we've only heard that version of that story. We need to hear from the other people who are there to get a fuller portrait of what happened. And I think that all Americans, regardless of whether you're a European American or an Asian American or an African American, would benefit from hearing that story. I think that enriches us all because it tells us the truth. 
It gives us a more fuller picture of context so that we can move on from it. And and you made it, you used a very interesting noun saying mythology and kind of that to me it equates a little bit of a story. And it seems that throughout the four episodes, there are stories woven into every dish that arrives on the table. But at the same time, there is um, a tie that binds all of them. They might not be the same flavors or the same, uh, you know, ingredients uh, in that dish, but there is a nourishment, there's a love going forth. So do you help think that food can help break barriers between cultures and have us learn to appreciate that we are more alike than different? I I think that food is a good icebreaker. I think sometimes when certain topics are loaded to, you know, are, are very difficult to broach between people who come from different communities, even if they're sometimes living across the street from each other, you know, um, food can be a gateway to better understanding. And it does bring people together. I'm an idealist. I truly believe that. And I, you know, I, I do, I do think that food is also a great vehicle for getting to know other people, for learning about their culture and their customs and what's important to them. I think food is also a way that most of us transmit our rituals and traditions and culture to the next generation in our community. And and I know our time is short, so before I let you go, um, as we go into this holiday season, do you have a, it, some people have a blessing, some people have a toast or a phrase that they like to share at their holiday gathering. Do you have something that you um, like to share with your family? I just wish everybody peace and harmony. I think we could all use a little peace of mind and peace of spirit. I think we've all collectively gone through something so profound and difficult. And whether we've had it easy or hard, whether we've lost a family member or a job or not, we've all still collectively been under great duress. And so I hope that this holiday season for everybody is one of gentle, restful, peaceful gatherings um, so we can all heal our souls a little bit. I really feel that, you know, the tale of this collective experience is going to be very long. And, you know, even as we're all getting back to normal, um, we can't forget that we've been through something really, really, really um, deep and difficult and that while we should endeavor to get back to normal, we should also remember that we have healing to do, both for ourselves and for others. Perfect. Well, thank you very much for your time today. I do appreciate it. And I hopefully everyone will watch uh, the four episodes with their family and, you know, continue some traditions in their own households. Thank you. Thank you so much for covering the show. I really appreciate the support. Hope everybody enjoyed that conversation Christine had with Padma Lakshmi. Um, and while we are clearly on the topic of holidays, as we approach the end of the year and we approach approach Christmas and New Year's, um, and before we, we get to the 
some of the thoughts that Carla Hall shared with you about holiday blessings and traditions. I wanted to know if there are Christmas and or New Year's traditions that you have personally or in your household or in your family that uh, you'll be you'll be uh, observing and celebrating this year. Um, well, I, this year might be a little different because uh, I, I believe there's a more of a, a, a combined family scenario. But generally, uh, Christmas for food Christmas uh, there's always a standing rib roast since I can remember since my kids were little we do a gigantic standing rib roast and uh all the sides and then dessert is uh bouche noel because that's what I like because even though my husband doesn't like French stuff I'm allowed to have one French dessert at a holiday so, and so for the uninformed tell tell us what the bouche noel is oh it's it's um it looks like a log. It's it's a cake. It's a rolled cake uh, with. It can be different flavors. Normally, chocolate with a chocolate mousse filling, and then it's decorated to look like a log with some little meringue mushrooms. If you've had a jelly roll, it's kind of like a version of a jelly roll. And I'm sitting here now because of your description, craving the jubilee roll from Friendlies. Okay. Well, that's another option. (laughs) That's that's the uh, ice cream version of a classic Bouche Noel. (laughs) It's rich, sweet, and absolutely nuts. It only comes but once a year. The Jubilee Roll from Friendlies. Just order any of our classic burgers. And we'll make you a Jubilee Sunday. Free. Now buy a whole Jubilee roll and get a pint of our new candy ice cream free to enjoy at home. Normally in the morning, we'll do mimosas. It's shocking that there'll be some type of alcohol wine um, at a holiday celebration. Uh, As for New Year's Eve, we don't go out. Um, As some people may not like what I'm about to say, New Year's Eve is amateur hour. Don't want to be around people uh, driving who shouldn't be um, on that night. So normally we'll just stay in. Growing up, my grandmother's birthday was New Year's Day. So it was always a birthday celebration on New Year's Day. So um, every once in a while, I try to incorporate a few of those things into whatever we serve. But we don't do the black IPs or... So many grapes at midnight that some people do. I can't remember all of the different food traditions, but I do stand by the one thing that I remember from, I think it's Asian culture that says you should never do laundry on New Year's Day because you wash away all your good luck. So don't do laundry on New Year's Day. Okay. Well, that's a a, good Good lesson to teach everybody. Anybody who's doing laundry on New Year's Day needs to get a life. Well, it's it's football. It's sleeping late. If you've celebrated the night before, it's it's a holiday. Regardless of what the holiday is, you're you're relaxing. You're hanging out. You're you're you should not be doing household chores. Well, maybe some people need to get stuff done. I mean, I can understand that, but plan ahead. You know, there's weird little superstition things that 
some people really follow and other people don't. Um, I don't know. That's the one that I've kind of stuck with recently. Okay. Not stuffing 12 grapes in my mouth at midnight, though. Can't do that one. So I'm going to bring the discourse back up a little bit. I, I apologize publicly to Carla Hall for leading into your interview with her. And, <laughs> and she doesn't drink either. She, so this makes so she, she's, my no spirit, she's my spirit animal, huh? <laughs> no, yeah. I mean, I've talked to, I will have to say that Carla Hall is probably one of the most generous people um, to interview. She comes up with thoughtful answers and insight mixed with a little bit of humor uh, along the way. But she is always a delight to talk to, always. Well, let's uh, share an example of that with people. Um, I should mention that um, in, in this conversation, Carla Hall talks about families, um, holiday blessings and traditions, whatever. But I also want to direct people to Amazon.com or their favorite online or brick and mortar uh, bookseller where they can pick up Carla Hall's Soul Food, her most recent cookbook. So let's take a listen. This is Christine's conversation, um, albeit brief, with Carla Hall. I know that part of your partnership with Avast that you, that you're um, shedding a, is sharing a little more Christmas cheer with some kids by giving away your delightful um, book which I, yes. you know, it has such a heartwarming story to it and shares a recipe as well. But mm-hmm. um, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about why you chose to donate to this particular charity, because it has a little bit of a, a an interesting twist to it that I found important. Yeah, well, buy one, give one the charity with Harriet's bookstore. There's so many people. I, first of all, I fell in love with that bookstore and they go out and they're all about children and, um, they're, um, being creative and, and thinking and just being, um, and reading. So, they go out on horses trying to get books to kids, whatever they can do to make reading attractive and exciting and interesting for the kids. And so full campaign is about when you buy a book, you know, they give a book. And so I, I love the story. I think it's really important for everyone to see themselves in the holidays and see uh, their likeness in Santa. And, um, and also it's, it's a story that I, and it's a really, it's really near and dear to my heart in terms of Christmas time with my grandparents and my grandmother and making cornbread. And so the story itself is, it's a fictional story, but it's based and rooted in our tradition at home, growing up and- in Nashville. And what would you tell people? It it is very clear that you know traditions are are important to your family and and keeping those moving forward. But for some people who maybe haven't started a holiday tradition, um, mm-hmm. whether it's rooted in food or in something else, what would what advice would you give to them to kind of start something with their own family and maybe why it's important to kind of keep these traditions? flowing from generation to generation? 
Well, I think that there's so much of our culture that is embedded in the traditions and in the recipes. And so by sharing those you are and passing those down, it anchors you into your community, into your family. I also think it's really important as your elders are telling these stories, and we don't think about it at the time, and this is only in hindsight for me, I wish that I had recorded some of those stories as my grandmother was telling them. So even if the holidays are a time where you come together, and I know in our family, it's about sharing these old stories, you know that you've heard a thousand times, but I've heard them a thousand times, but the younger generation maybe has only heard them a handful of times. But that is the time when we share those stories. That's the time that we are sitting around the table and we're having probably the same menu that we've been having year after year after year. But that is part of the tradition. I think that one of the things that I started doing with my nephews and my niece when I did my cookbook I asked them to make one of the recipes from it. And generally, you know, that we make some of the same things, but by having them make them and use my recipe, they are also cooking. And so they're cooking our food, which they wouldn't normally. They were like, oh, you can make the food. And then they'll get to be my age and like, oh, I never made it. I don't know what's in it. Or and so it's by like getting people. Yeah, it's like that food memory that's in the back of your mind that you can always kind of taste, but never Mm -hmm. quite recreate. That's right. That's right. And that's how I actually learned food from my grandmother, because I was already in culinary school and I realized I didn't really know how many of the things were made. So I had to do it from memory in my head and my taste. But I went to culinary school, so I was able to reverse engineer a lot of these dishes. And so those are many of the ones that went into my first cookbook. And those are the ones that I share with um, the the people in my family. But everybody makes a dish in my family, every single person, because they are all involved in the preparation of the meal. And they don't have to make it in my house. They make it in theirs and we we bring it. (laughs) So uh, you're telling me this holiday season that even if my 15-year-old makes a gigantic disaster all across my kitchen, it it get him in there with the recipe that was handed down from his great grandmother and have him make the, the coffee cake from scratch with Crisco. Yes. Yes. Because even that, because you can't think about the mess. So the thing is he can't make it a coffee cake. You can make a couple days before you're not making it in the midst of the, when you're busy and working in the kitchen. So he can make it ahead of time, and but he still has that memory. The memory that he is gathering and the muscle memory of making that cake and seeing people eat it and enjoy it, fingers crossed, that is priceless. Well, um, so I, I know our time is short today, but um, I we've been asking um, any of the chefs that have come on this uh, holiday season if they are willing to share a... Um, and you can choose the noun, whichever fits your um, background appropriately. But I like to say a blessing um, with people that you would um, say around your holiday table with family. Mm, mm. So the the one that I tend to say, and we usually go around, um, is 
may this food bless me and nourish me in ways that I know and ways that I, that I do not know that it may nourish my mind, body, and spirit. And, um, and in saying that blessing, it rang even truer because I was recently in Mexico and I was, I was shooting a show and I was talking to um, the Taino people, the indigenous people there. And they asked their ancestors for permission for the food, for the permission from the food. They asked for permission to eat the food and blessing the hands that made the food. And that's the thing that my mother usually says. Um, but I think we forget that food has energy. And so when we ingest it, we really want it to be nurturing and healing for us. And we don't know how that is. So that's the thing that I normally say. We are back. Um, hope you enjoyed that uh, brief conversation that Christine had with uh, Carla Hall. Um, I should also mention, um, in addition to Carla Hall's Soul Food that uh, I referred to before we listened to the interview, you would also want to check Amazon or your favorite bookseller for Carla and the Christmas Cornbread, her new book that is inspired by Carla's childhood and the story of young Carla. And you'll want to um, pick that up as well. So, And it has a really good recipe for cornbread in it too. Uh, and, and that's most important because there's very few things better than a great cornbread. So I'm all on board for that. With that, we will end things on season one and bring this show to a close, this episode to a close. Um, I want to thank everybody for listening to us all year through our our first season. Um, I hope you have enjoyed not only the banter that Christine and I uh, have every episode, but uh, more importantly, the amazing guests that we continue to welcome to the show. And it's just the tip of the iceberg. But when you can have the first season of a food cast and include guests like we did today with Jacques Pepin and Padma Lakshmi and Carla Hall and and stack that upon other episodes where we've welcomed everybody from Wolfgang Puck to Gordon Ramsay to um, Donatella Arpaia and Simon Majumdar. Um, there is never an end. It's, there's an infinite number of fascinating people who are as passionate about food and drink as we are that we will continue to welcome to the show. So we hope you will uh, join us again in January for the season premiere of our second season. Christine, it's been fun. Um, I think we're getting better and better and our, our guests continue to uh, prop us up and make us look good. And I'm looking forward to doing it again after the New Year's. I look forward to it as well. And, and I, um, since you might want one resolution, I resolve to get Brad to eat an avocado by the end of 2022. And before I sign off, I can tell everybody that just heard that, that that is one resolution that Christine will be breaking. Thanks for joining us on Excuse Me, May I Have Some More? We are the Foodcast with an Insatiable Appetite. I am Brad Kramer. That was Christine Struble dreaming um, her wildest dreams that are not going to come true. And we thank you for joining us and hope you will subscribe and like us and comment on us and tell your friends about us and join us again when we're back in early January. Thanks. Take care, Christine. 
Bye. Live big. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. Bye bye. Happy holidays to you. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.